Hey, folks, welcome to the Dark Horse Podcast live stream number 52. Yep. Is that right? right. Mm -hmm. 52. We are closing in days away from a presidential election. I have to say, I am guardedly optimistic. Oh, wow. Okay. For what? That we will make it to the election. Mm -hmm. That that you and I, the country, all of us. All of us. I'm not saying I will actually reach Tuesday. I'm saying I think the chances are. Are, are fairly good. We will make it to Tuesday intact. After that, all bets are off. But uh, yeah, Tuesday, I think, is a, a high probability. All right. <laughs> all right. I'm not sure exactly uh, what else to say, except for the fact that things seem uh, awfully precarious. And they really do. Um, and I think we will we may come back on Wednesday with another live stream, uh, depending on what is known, what we think is known, the various uh, values of knownness uh, in the universe as of Wednesday morning. Uh, I have a suggestion. Yes. We call it a still a live stream. Okay. All right. I think we could call it that regardless of when we came back. But uh, that's um, a fair point. I do think that uh, it's worth spending a little time both talking about what's happening in our in our neck of the woods and also saying something about how Portland just how Portland feels at the moment, uh, because I spent a couple of partial days this last week just walking around downtown, just trying to just I, I just went to see what it felt like, and it feels like everyone is holding their breath. Uh, it's of course much more empty than it would normally be in a non-COVID nineteen year, but beyond that, how you know to what can you attribute the emptiness? Obviously, some of it has to do with the protests and riots. And um, for a little while there in September, it had to do, you know, it was completely empty, I assume, because we, like I think everyone else, was effectively locked in their homes because of smoke. But, uh, and, you know, most of the downtown businesses at this, at this point are boarded up, even the ones that have not declared that they are shuttered uh, permanently, although many have. Uh, there is, you know, there is the usual graffiti and garbage, some of which is really unpleasant. And um, the homeless people who I saw and actually interacted with uh, this last week were reminded me more of the homeless people of 10 years ago um, than some of the people who feel like newcomers who've been uh, increasingly uh, showing up on the streets here. But it really felt like, it felt like no one could tell what was going on and basically you know your your ridiculous prediction that we'll make it to Tuesday is how people are living at the moment yeah it's uh it's stunning and it really is there is a feel to it and i think you know one of the things we've discovered over uh many discussions with people in remote places is that we really have no good way Unless we deliberately check in with how does it feel in Florida, in Michigan. So uh, when you say remote places, you mean like in the outback? Like no, what, what do you I mean, mean by remote? I mean remote from you. Ah, that, so for, for anyone trying to understand what it feels like to be on the ground in place X, uh, you actually, to some degree, I mean, this, this is the value in the absurdly weaponized term lived experience, right? You know, what, what, what is it to actually be there and, and see with your own eyes and experience with all of your other senses uh, what life is like in Florida or uh, Venice or wherever? Right? Well, I think I'm actually pointing to almost the opposite premise, okay. which is 
that when people say lived experience, right, they can say, well, you may have all the data in the world on what it's like to be black in America, but you, there's nothing you can do that substitutes for my, you know, were I black, my lived experience, right? Right. right. And of course, there's one way in which this is undeniable. And there's another way in which we don't even know what your lived experience means because we don't know what kinds of biases went into formulating it. We don't know how representative it is. We don't know, mm -hmm. you know, any of the things that you would want to know. It's not data, um, which doesn't mean it doesn't contain something. But in this case, w what I'm increasingly noticing, you know, sort of generally in the internet age, but increasingly as we go um, quite obviously mad, the fact that one has no basis to assume that something that you would normally assume that other people had seen and felt together mm. is actually a shared experience. Yes. Right? You have to check in. Yes. And so Yeah, actually that yeah, that that fits very well with some some of the places we want to go here today. Yeah, it's yeah. just it's a it's a key thing because if you don't, if you just are on autopilot and your sense, you know, it, the problem is it's born of a very normal assumption that is in general rock solid, right? Mm -hmm. If you're standing with somebody somewhere and you're looking at something the chances that they can see it too are very, very high, right? Unless it's very tiny and difficult for you to perceive, in which case you would you would know that you had to say, ah, it's right over there by the thing. Well, um, I mean, I think this points to at least two things. One is the necessity of intact and um, you know it, it deeply nuanced theories of mind, right? Like hu humans are not the only organisms that have theory of mind, which is to say the ability to attribute to someone else a different understanding of reality or a different emotional state or a different, you know, understanding of, yeah, well, a different understanding of reality, really, um, than what you yourself have. Uh, there, I've mentioned here before the excellent book Baboon Metaphysics by the two primatologists, Dorothy Cheney and um, Richard Seyfarth, Robert Seyfarth. Cheney and Seyfarth, uh, a married couple who spent a lot of time in Botswana and the Okavango River Delta studying these baboons, um, <clears throat> who find terrific evidence for theory of mind in baboons. And of course, it's been noted in, you know, in crows, in I think dolphins, and certainly elephants and wolves and parrots. Um, so a number of these, these other groups, all of which independently evolve an ability to ascertain that that which you believe is not necessarily that which I believe. Right, and we also there's you know a number of developmental psychology studies uh, that point to when when it is in a child's life, uh, they tend to begin to develop a theory of mind. I don't actually remember when that moment is. Something before two years for sure, but it may be well well before that. Well, it does. It's not fully developed until much later, and so there are sure, a sure. series of elaborate experiments which you're you're alluding to here, in which you know you can you know a child who is old enough to speak, you can ask them to tell you what it is that someone else will have seen. And then you, by adjusting when it is that that person entered and left the room. And so mm -hmm. an adult would know, oh, they didn't see that development. Yeah. You can tell. Yeah, actually, I'm not sure the two-year mark. I, I, I don't I don't remember. You're, you're right that it's sort of the sliding scale of uh, nuance in theory of mind. And um, <clears throat> I think part of our confusion, our sort of global, our humanity-wide confusion right now, at least for those with the internet, which is basically all of, you know, the subset of humanity with whom all of us and you watching and listening are engaging with are pretty much people who are um, have access to the internet, is that the internet, to a greater degree even than TV, which came before it, but TV did this as well, because it shows you real people, uh, you imagine that they are, you know, they are part of your social group. 
right? That they are part of your social group and that they therefore have been sharing, sharing the same things and knowing the same things as everyone else. And so we, we sort of drop some of the usual um, requirements for theory of mind when we assume, well, like you're, you're part of my group, therefore I know that you and I have seen the same thing. We might disagree on what it means, but at least we have a shared, a, a common experience. And no, it's not true. It's right. not true. And I think you and I see this in particular because we have people who are showing up to, to talk with us, mostly virtually, but also whom we're talking with in real life, who are coming from really, you know, across the political spectrum. Right. Like so. So we have people who see any critique of of Trump as evidence of Trump derangement syndrome. And we have people who see any evidence of the protests that become riots as evidence of uh, of secretly cryptically loving Trump. And you know, it seems like never the twain shall meet. But we can actually see that one of the commonalities there is you actually have literally seen different things than we've seen. Like right. in in your feeds, in your um, in in your life, and in your media feeds, you are literally being shown and told, and uh, and that that those two things are also collapsed. The showing and the telling is being collapsed into a single point by most media, including most journalists, such that um, you know the the analysis is wrapped into the showing, such that you can't untangle it. Untangle it. It is. Um a novel kind of bias that I think we haven't yet named. And I think the problem here, like with many of these novel modern phenomena, is that it is partly conscious and partly emergent. Mm -hmm. And so because it is these two things, you know, to the extent that you sound like you're alleging a conspiracy to, you know, to edit down to one set of facts, you sound like a crazy person. And, you know, mm -hmm. to the extent that you think, well, you know, you know, I saw it on my feed and, it's yeah. not fake. The point is you're naive and the right. there the truth is really subtle in one mm -hmm. way, which is that we have algorithms. First of all, we have publishers that appear to have suspended the most basic journalistic rules. Mm -hmm. And I think they think they've done it temporarily. I think they think, well, this is just such a dire circumstance that, you know, we're going to forego, you know, and it's a little bit like the argument for um, for lockdown, right? Yeah. The argument for lockdown is, look, civil liberties are really important. This is a novel, contagious, dangerous phenomenon for which we need to temporarily, you know, change our, uh, our ordering of the priorities. Mm -hmm. And the fact is, I think there's a great argument for that. It doesn't mean it's not being deployed cynically, right? Right, And the problem is that the platforms and the publishers are now adjusting the fabric of reality. Mm -hmm. And because they think they're doing it intentionally for a good reason, they have completely lost track and lost control of the degree to which they are changing the necessary parameters for even building a basic model of reality. Oh, and this, it's it's a particularly human, maybe not. It's a particularly any kind of organism with with theory of mind and technology, <clears throat> and um, that's not purely limited to humans. But we've obviously taken it to a greater degree than anyone else. Um, kind of of arrogance that imagines that 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 doesn't understand Chesterton's fence. Again, an idea that we've come back to and back to and back to in this in this live stream, and as we talk about a lot in our book. Uh, the idea that when you come upon a fence and you don't know what it's for, but it's irritating to you for some reason, uh, 
you should not be allowed to get rid of it unless and until uh, you can, at the very least, bare minimum, come to understand why the people who put it there put it there. What is its intended use? It's possible it has outgrown its use. Right. It is possible it no longer has the utility that it had, or that it was put up um, with good intentions and it's doing something bad, or that it was an error in the first place and was put up with bad intentions. All of those things are possible. But when you find such a structure, you don't get rid of it without first trying to understand what it is there for in the first place. And um, frankly, a lot of modern psychology makes this makes this error. A lot of modern medicine makes this error. You know, we you, just over and over and over again. But you know what you're speaking to with regard to well, you know, and and you and I were you know have been advocates for for the lockdown in order to deal with the virus, especially early on. Um, but it does come with this risk that once you take some civil liberties away, how do you get them back? Right. And in fact, the Chesterton's fence thing is canonically going to run up against every counterintuitive right. Right. Mm. Counterintuitive yeah. rights by yeah. their very nature are yeah. a version of Chesterton's fence. You inherit free speech. You don't know what it's good for because you haven't seen the alternative. And it seems like, you know, what's really irritating? Some of these terrible things that people say. If I we really just, don't want to hear them anymore. I really don't want to hear these terrible. There's some truly vile, vile stuff being said. Mm -hmm. Right. And in, you know, in this case, I think and not this only is, don't I want to hear them, but I don't want you to hear them because it's bad for you. It's bad for you. Yeah. Right. And the thing is, everybody gets that, including the people who formulated these rights. Right. Right. They formulated them because there was a higher principle. And until you've lived with the absence of this freedom, you don't really understand why you should be tolerating vile speech. Right. And the answer is because not tolerating it eliminates speech you need yep. to hear, but is heterodox or counterintuitive or, or whatever. And actually, let me just say too, you know, that the some of the frankly naive pushback that I'll hear to the little sarcastic spoofing we were just doing of the anti-free speech people uh, is well you know why don't you why don't you then object to uh, to obscuring what's available to children well children are children yep. and it is exactly the adults roles and specifically parents roles to protect children until they are of an age where they can actually make decisions and choices for themselves and when is that and how is that and the, you know these are all judgment calls that we should be having conversations about as a society but certainly within the family um, that is um, that is an expectation that children are protected from some things um and, you know as the the more so earlier on and well, there was one other thing I was going to say to that, but I don't remember. Well, nonetheless, actually, maybe this is a good place. Uh, it's out of order here, but we are losing track of things, you know, as as Douglas Murray says, things we knew until yesterday, right? Yeah. So I ran into, uh, many, maybe many of you have seen it on Twitter, Noam Chomsky was interviewed by The New Yorker. Recently? And, uh, yeah, like in the last few days. Zach, okay. could you put up uh, the article? There he is. There's Noam. Uh, this is Noam Chomsky, and he says in this article, and I will say I didn't read the article through, but I certainly did track down this claim to make sure that it wasn't being misrepresented. He said that Trump is the worst criminal in human history. And I would point out this is Noam Chomsky, yeah. and he and the uh, to the journalist's credit, he and the journalist tangle over whether that could possibly be defended, mm -hmm. and the journalist points out that in order to reach this, 
you have to make a number of uh, leaps, including you have to obliterate the idea of intent being relevant. And Chomsky says in the interview he doesn't care. Basically, his claim here is that he's the worst criminal in human history because the things he's doing put us in jeopardy, which is a nonsense claim that a guy like Chomsky ought to certainly know better than to say. But um, well, and certainly I would have liked I, – I, I won't comment on the article because I have not read it. <clears throat> I didn't know it existed. Um, but uh, if, if, as you say – the headline is pulled correctly from uh, Chomsky's actual beliefs. That does truly point to the ridiculous moment that we're living in when people will make a claim, uh, you know, one of the most important left voices alive today could make a claim like that. Right. Especially in, you know, the thing that Chomsky would be expected to be excellent at is the recognition that both sides were putting us in tremendous jeopardy and mm -hmm. that ultimately one needs to escape this. And so I must say I was completely shocked by his endorse, endorsement of Biden because of Chomsky. course- Yeah, because, you know, pick your existential threat, right? It's two different versions of catastrophe. And a guy like Chomsky is exactly the sort of person who traditionally, when he's on his game, says, yes, actually the system does this. Right. Yeah. And here in this case, he's just sided with one group and he's put on blinders. And it's the same thing we've seen from, you know, Bernie Sanders and frankly, Andrew Yang. You know, it's mm -hmm. it's incredible how many people regard something about Trump as requiring them to surrender the very capacity for nuance that made each of them special. Yeah. Um, you know, I wasn't I wasn't on social media and I wasn't paying attention to any of these types of conversations throughout the Obama presidency. And uh, we, as we have said before, were huge fans of Obama and excited about him uh, at the point that he was running the first time and really felt like things could be turning around in, in some truly positive ways in 2008. And I, by the time 2012 rolled around, reluctantly voted for him a second time. And I don't, you didn't even I vote didn't. for him a second time. So um, we are, we are not here as people who were, uh, you know, blind to the disappointments of the president that brought the most hope in our lifetime anyway. Um, but I have, you know, I've, I've heard and I've not dug into the history of the bile on the right against Obama. And, um, I think, you know, I, I know it existed and I don't know what its tone was. I don't know what its tenor was. I know some of it was fabulously dis disgusting. Um, but I don't, what I don't know is, was it a mere image of, of this with regard to the left's feeling about Trump? And I, I, I just don't know the answer to that. Well, you know, it's a great question. And the problem, you know, I've been forced by the bad behavior of people I once respected to go back and try to rethink how I ended up concluding what I had about them and whether I was in fact blind. Yeah. And, right. you know, in Obama's case, I'm pretty sure I wasn't, I mean, there was definitely at the point before he had been elected, and I actually believed that he um, stood an excellent chance of changing things and that he would change them in a, a positive direction. Um, I was clearly missing something, and I still don't know what it was. I still don't know if Obama is not who we thought he was, if he is who we thought he was, but something that we cannot see blocked him, uh, or I don't know what the explanation is. But in, in which case, if he is what we thought he was and something blocked him, then 
how can you imagine that any president could affect change in the in the United States at this point? Right. And in fact, this is one of the arguments that people deploy in various ways in favor of Trump, which is that because mm -hmm. he's truly not of this system, he is truly... Or he wasn't until four years ago. Well, right. I mean, that's my point is, yes, mm -hmm. he muscled in on their action, which mm -hmm. is at least a novel storyline, but it's not a <laughs> right. positive change. Right. Right? It's a new it's a new crime family on the scene, yep. um, you know, given as good as it gets from the old crime families mm -hmm. um, or to the old crime families. But uh, so I don't know where... I miss things. But I do know well, that, I mean, mm -hmm. even the fact that I didn't vote for Obama a second time, I didn't vote for him because I was wide awake to his failure to be what we expected and hoped he would be and to all of the things he did that I thought were jaw-dropping and dangerous. So, but I, I, so I was paying attention and I, I didn't get what what you are asking about, which and is- And you this, were on social media during that time. I was. Yeah. Um, but I guess I, I really, I do wonder how new this thing that we're seeing with regard to the inability to deal with anything that Trump does other than the fact that it's Trump from the left has been mirrored um, on the right with regard to Obama. And you know, if we go back eight more years um, to Bush too, no one in our sphere whom we were talking politics to at that point was a big fan of Bush too. Uh, but there, it, it wasn't like this. Right. It was not like this at all. And so I don't know if things changed with uh, the right's response to Obama or if the left's response to Trump is actually a sea change, a, a, a truly novel situation uh, that is marking something that, frankly, if if this is if this is as new as it feels to me, not having seen, not having been privy to what might have been going on uh, on the right with regard to their hatred of Obama, uh, then that points to even greater worries to me about instability that is that is brewing right now. Right. I think I think what we are those of us who are tracking the meta phenomenon. Yeah. Right, the inconsistency between things that were once reconcilable. Right. right, right. Those of us who are tracking that are, I think, alarmed because it's a little bit like, um, I don't know, what's the right analogy? Maybe it's um, why am I blanking on his name? Uh, the uh, mathematician, uh, schizophrenic mathematician, a beautiful mind. Uh, uh, anyway, it'll come back to me, but. Yep. Here you had a highly intelligent person who became aware that he was perceiving um, reality in a fiercely broken way. Right. And, you know, to his credit, was able to sort of build a correction so that that thing didn't interfere with his ability to do um, Nash. Um, Nash, that's right. To do w what he... Uh, was on earth effectively to do right to to sort out stuff like nash equilibria and other yeah deep i mean stuff. It interfered with plenty else in his life but. right but the point is if you know that your brain plays those tricks on you i actually think this is one of the important values of um of psychedelics is that if you mm -hmm. can knowingly engage some of the things that your brain will do under those circumstances, then you're a little better prepared mm -hmm. when things go haywire for whatever reason. Yeah, whether endogenously or exogenously. Right. Yeah. But, um, but in any case, those of us who are tracking the meta-narrative are, I think, 
beginning to be aware that we are watching something that is not just an analogy to collective psychosis, mm-hmm. that this is a very real process. And it really, you know, like imagine that uh, social media has paranoid schizophrenia at the moment and then say, well, how much does that explain about the discussions that I'm watching? Uh, oh, unfortunately, uh, way more than would be healthy. And geez, what's tied up in this, um, mm-hmm. you know, pandemic policy, nuclear codes, you know, economic right. collapse, our view of race and all of the progress that we've made on it over the last couple hundred years. And isn't, I mean, paranoid schizophrenia, it, which, you know, itself may be a bunch of things, you know, with different ideologies and, you know, we're not, we're, we're no psychologists, but um, I think it is actually in some way, one of its many features is it's a failure of, it inherently involves a failure theory of mind um, because there is additional narrative going on at least sometimes in the head of the person and they have to imagine um, that as they are spouting nonsense to someone else that that someone else is also sharing their delusions and so um, the, it, this it, this is a breakdown of this again you know not unique to humans but one of the fundamental you know, superpowers of humans, which is attributing different mental states to others, theory of mind. Right. And actually, you know, maybe the solution here, which I think we're a long way from, but we need to bootstrap it and quick. Um, the solution borrows from interpersonal experience, right? Those rare mm-hmm. interpersonal experiences that actually mirror this exact breakdown where two people diverge in their ability to see even what narrative they they share together yeah and the point is that results in you know literally being triggered you know uh in this way that makes the other person the enemy and all of this and so to the extent that the real point is you know what I don't know what you're seeing on your feed, but mm-hmm. I'm just going to make the assumption. I know you to be reasonable. Therefore, I'm going to assume that the crazy things that I hear you saying are the logical result of what you actually think is going on and that the divergence between what you think is going on and what I think is going on is in some sense exogenous. Yeah. And, you know, I do wonder, I know there have been some experiments, but I do wonder why those of us who recognize the hazard here are not obsessed with reverse engineering as much of the algorithmic stuff as we can, including why are we not paired with somebody who the algorithm sees as our opposite so that we can exchange information on what reality looks like through that lens, Mm -hmm. just as a corrective. I mean, I do this informally. Yeah. I'm checking in with stuff I'm not supposed to be reading because that tells me something of what other people are seeing, but there ought to be a systematic way to do it. Mm-hmm. And um, I don't I don't at least see a wholesale effort at it and it yeah. really needs to happen. No, I remember actually um, our friend Jordan Hall, uh, formerly Jordan Greenhall, saying to us, gosh, it must have been five, six years ago, that he was he specifically made a point of going deep and, and you know not just surface level not sort of just you know fox versus msnbc but deep into the the chans basically of both sides to see what was being believed and what was being trotted out as fact well fascinating you should mention jordan mm-hmm. because guess what happened to jordan this week Oh, he got booted from Facebook, booted didn't he? Booted from Facebook. Amazing. Oh, my goodness. So yeah. my conjecture here is actually that there is some... So some of you will be familiar with him from uh, Blue Church, Red Church discussions. Yep. Yep. Um, 
uh, or yeah. Rebel Wisdom. Yeah, he's uh, done a number of Rebel Wisdom interviews. He's but, a fabulous thinker, and he's got some amazing essays on Medium as well. He does, but yeah. I think the thing is, the um, thing that tossed me off Facebook and has now tossed him, and a, a bunch of other people were tossed to, and I don't know who they were. I'm mm -hmm. not paying real close attention to Facebook. But yeah. um, the thing that I think is the thread that joins us is you've got – people who are not dismissible as conservatives, right? If you're a, a, you know, a GOP conservative, then I don't think Facebook is all that worried about you because at some level you can be dismissed by yeah. those who need to ignore the things that you're saying. You're already wearing the star. Right. Yeah, there you go. The real problematic cases are the ones who aren't buying this woke stuff that is taking over these institutions but can't be dismissed as conservatives for whatever reason, or either mm -hmm. too heterodox or too liberal or something like that, because mm -hmm. that is the thing that breaks the damn narrative. Yeah. And so, yeah, we need they they need ideologues in order to effectively categorize and market to and control. Yeah. However, um, it, something is bizarre. I went back when I was let back into Facebook and began to look at who my friends on Facebook are. Mm -hmm. um, it's pretty interesting. There's some pretty powerful people in that friend group, and I'm sure Jordan will be able to say the same thing. So I have the sense that there's a battle going on in Facebook. And powerful in tech space. Powerful, yeah. Very much so. Yeah. And so anyway, this has got to be super awkward inside Facebook. We may never know what's going on yeah. there, but... Well, when you, you mentioned this to me off air a couple of days ago, and you know, I said to you, I think you know maybe there's a, a power struggle going on, but I think at least some of these events, and maybe... A majority of them, maybe a vast majority of them, are attributable to the fact that in many domains, the adults in charge have put interns, sometimes unpaid entirely, sometimes underpaid, fresh out of college, super woke, you know, brim, heads brimming with postmodernist critical race theory, fill in the blank studies here, nonsense, in charge of things like uh, social media feeds and making decisions about um, about censoring accounts, basically, because these are this this is work that requires a desire to spend a lot of time in those in those in those spaces, and also is is kind of rote. But it turns out that this kind of rote work actually has tremendous power. So we've they they we didn't they um, the the would be adults. Uh, both ceded power in in parenting and helped create this this mess among nearly an entire generation, and uh, and now many of the the woke young are in charge of effectively policing what we all are allowed to see. Yeah, but it's even one step worse than this because mm -hmm. you've got that thread through which um, total nonsense of a woke stripe has reached a level of uh, you know commonality and acceptance that it makes it dangerous. But then you have this other thing, which I don't think is inherently closely related to it, mm -hmm. right? Which is the corrupt left, the technocratic corrupt left, which is attempting to maintain its power. And my point would be is, is if you come at this from the question of, well, okay, what does a heterodox person conclude about all of the issues of the day, mm -hmm. right? Two things they are likely to conclude are one, um, that the woke stuff is dangerous and not true, and two, that um, the Democratic Party is not defending the interests of common people and is actually 
uh, a cryptically corrupt force that maintains the status quo and keeps power held tightly in a small group. Mm -hmm. And the point is, okay, so the platforms are now inhabited by people motivated by the former and owned by people motivated by the latter, and they've teamed up in this unholy alliance. Mm -hmm. And that is the really scary thing because the, the kind of power to adjust the way we think or whether we think that is contained in the algorithmic technical layer is immense. Yeah, no, it sure is. Can we talk about another scary alliance? Wonderful. Let's talk about another scary Let's alliance. Let's do it. Uh, Bernie Sanders endorsed Sarah Yannarone for mayor mm. of Portland. Yes, he did. Sarah Yannarone, for those of you not in Portland or who have missed our earlier conversations, is the uh, contender for mayor against uh, Ted Wheeler, who is the incumbent and who has done a mostly just terrible job uh, kowtowing to the protesters and the rioters and uh, making sure to leave the police with very little options in terms of shutting down the violence that's been happening in Portland, where we have a, a 30 year high in terms of the mur murder rate. Uh, we have, you know, just, it, it's, it's been, it's been bad. And I'll say a little bit more about that later. Um, so early in the summer, when the protests, which nightly become riots and have every single night since, uh, they started in the end of May, uh, we were thinking, well, okay, Ted Wheeler's up for election. Um, and we just had not been paying much attention to local, the local politics. You know, that, that was one error that we made. It turns out uh, that in the primary, Sarah Yannarone, who came in far, far behind Ted Wheeler, came in with enough votes that a runoff is necessary, and now it's the two of them. In not the most recent poll, but a poll, the penultimate poll that was done, Yannarone was 11 points ahead in the mayoral race against Wheeler. And this is terrifying. We are now in a position of needing Wheeler, who has been bumbling and incompetent and helped lead Portland to the brink of disaster. We need Wheeler to stay in office because the 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 opposition is a dangerous loon. And now we have Bernie Sanders, oh boy, endorsing her. So let me just, I want to read from a little text exchange I had with one of her staffers. Oh, sure. Um, so this, you know, many, everyone really, I'm sure now is getting these um, unsolicited texts from people saying, hey, you're registered, whatever you are. Um, we know that you're going to vote for, hmm, and if you if you don't, well, then what's wrong with you? So, you know, we've gotten them for uh, the Democrats at the national level, at the state level, and at the mayoral level. And uh, I got something from a staffer for Ian Arun. And I'm not going to read the whole interchange, um, but in the in my in my final thing to her, I said a strong criminal element is being allowed to destroy property and businesses, do actual harm to people, and terrorize many in a cloak of anti-racism and anti-fascism that looks like a convenient lie to get people to go along. I can't vote for someone who supports Antifa. Does Ian Rowan have published statements on what has been happening in the streets since George Floyd's death? This was in early September. The staffer responded in full, quote, Sarah is a progressive, an educator, and she stands opposed to fascism. The media, especially right-wing outlets, love to demonize Sarah because of what she represents, a true challenge to the conservative establishment who is ready for change. Sarah doesn't want America to turn into an authoritarian state, so she opposes fascism and calls herself an everyday anti-fascist like so many of us that stand opposed to extremism might. 
Sarah is a working-class mom and an entrepreneur, a cyclist and an urban planner who studied at PSU. Sarah isn't a radical. She's just unapologetic about being right when confronted with injustice. That scares people who would rather see progress fail. I don't, I don't even know how much of this is true. Like, I don't know in what way Anne Arone is supposedly an educator. I looked to back up that claim and I can't find anything. Um, also on some page I found she's listed as a professor at PSU and she doesn't even have a PhD. So I, I honestly don't know if any of these claims are true. I know well, she's she... certainly schooling Wheeler. <laughs> yes. So, but yeah, bigger, bigger than just trying to fact check this litany of supposed attributes this woman has. Um, it's it's the same kind of twisted language that is passing for logic on so much of the left right now. Well, we should also point out for, you know, since very few of our, our listeners are Portland residents who will probably even know who Sarah Yanarone is. Well, that's why I gave a little preamble. Right. But I mean, you know, among the things that she has done visibly, uh, she broadcast a tweet in which she shows a photograph of what she says is her favorite here's how i voted ballot picture so this is from when she was running for mayor in 2016 right and people were sending her pictures of their ballots where they had voted for her for mayor and this ballot had had she a had, complete other slate of people yes except for the vote for her they were all write-ins yep and all the write-ins were, I think Stalin was on there Stalin? three times. Mao. Mao. Lenin. Uh, yeah. Uh, Angela Davis, I think, was there. Um, it was it was a who's who of, uh, of Castro was despots. on there, I believe. Yep. So in any case, look, this is not funny. This yeah. is not funny. Last night, I believe it was last night, the... Uh, Perpetual riot was in Vancouver, Washington, just north of the Columbia River here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, not Vancouver, BC. It's it's, it's Greater Portland. It's Met- basically it's Greater a, Metro a suburb Portland. of Portland. Yeah. And um, anyway, uh, with less tax. <laughs> yeah, with no income tax. But <laughs> right. um, but anyway, the rioters were in the streets doing something that they've gotten used to doing, which is. Um, harassing citizens and insisting uh, that they uh, wake up and um, oh we're awake yeah we're and sleeping uh, you know, with you guys basically, around basically it's it's a roving menace and I think the mm-hmm. idea is that at some level they've they've settled upon um, spooking one neighborhood after the next so that people understand there's a mob in the street and it regards you as the enemy unless you make certain noises. And so in that context, right, to be broadcasting, and at the very least, I believe she rebroadcast this this tweeted picture recently. So in the context of the modern, uh, of this current electoral cycle, um, for her to be playing games with famous despots, like... You know, if you're in a friend group and they know you really well and they know that that's the opposite of who you are, it's one thing to make those jokes. It's another thing entirely when we are actually watching something with many elements of a communist revolution Mm -hmm. uh, marching through the streets, uh, intimidating citizens, engaged in violence, uh, damaging uh, courthouses, all of this stuff. That is no moment to be on the ballot uh, running for mayor and joking about this stuff. And... My guess, and I guess it's my hope also, is that Bernie Sanders 
got bad info. Maybe he's got people on his staff who are who just think the farther left something is, the better. Mm-hmm. Um, or maybe he, you know, somebody looked at the websites of the various candidates and she sounded more progressive because she makes an effort to do that. Um, and that this was a careless endorsement. Yeah. But on the other hand, you and I and several others um, tweeted at him yesterday saying, this is a terrible error and you're putting the people of Portland in jeopardy. Uh, rethink yeah, his it. endorsement potentially really makes a difference. Yeah, it's a close race. And the fact is, um, in a close race at this scale, of course, his endorsement could make it could make the difference. And I don't know what happens if, if Biden wins and Iana Roan wins. I don't know what happens to Portland, but it, it isn't going to be good. Nope. Nope, it's not. Uh, so maybe speaking of our narratives about Portland and what it is that uh, we understand to be true as opposed to what is being put out there in the world. The Guardian published an op-ed, I think it was today, maybe last night, by a woman who moved to Portland from London with her family in 2015, um, but finds it not to be the liberal paradise she was expecting. Uh, And this, here actually, I can can put it up briefly and then I'll just read a couple of, here we go. Um, So... We left the UK for Portland expecting a liberal dream. That wasn't the reality. Uh, And so she is South Asian, presumably. I don't know if she says that in the the piece. Um, But she talks about being a brown person, which is difficult but easier than being a black person. So she even specifies at that level. And uh, apparently her husband here, uh, his mom lives in Portland, um, but they moved from London five years ago and they're really thinking of moving back. Uh, So if I may have my screen back, Zachary. Um, she, her take, uh, is, as has been noted online, well-written and I'm sorry, well-written isn't sufficient. It's, it reminded, it reminds me talking about a take being well-written of the students of ours who, when we would have them read the selfish gene, uh, first up in, in a number of our programs by Dawkins would object to it on the basis of his tone. Like, you know, you can object to his tone or you could like the way that she puts words together, but we're asking you to think about the content. And yes, the way it's written does have an effect on how you think about the content, but it can't be first and it can't be the only thing that you have to say about it. So um, she, just just to a few quick quotes, she calls uh, what has been going on in Portland predominantly peaceful protests, something with which we are well familiar Uh, She says, small groups who damaged property grabbed national headlines, alighting the fact that actually there's been um, a lot more than property damage. There's been been violence to people, including killings. Um, The quote, scare quotes, the riots were confined to a couple of blocks downtown. Nope, not true. The protesters were not threatening Portlanders. What? No, and I imagine that's a kind of a cryptic dog whistle to the man who was actually murdered um, by the guy who was then killed by police up near Olympia, Washington, was maybe not a Portlander. I don't even, I don't remember if that's true, but I sort of imagine that might be what that little wordplay is about there. Um, Quote, we took our seven-year-old to family-friendly protests. Yeah, maybe, and I'll bet you got out of there before the sun went down, didn't you? Quote, meanwhile, the police were threatening... So, you know, she goes through all of this evidence of how peaceful it is by simply claiming how peaceful it is. And then she goes into the usual scare tactics, the the fear mongering. Um, So it it made me wonder, you know, is this willful deception or is she legitimately confused? And, you know, of course it's both. Of course she's involved in, she's got deep-seated fear 
of other in part, actually, like she's she's got the same deep seated fear of other as she displays when she's talking about being in eastern Oregon and not wanting to get out of the car because, you know, she reads it as people don't like the color of her skin. Um, but this this strikes me as as fear that is, I don't think, mostly uh, mostly founded in the state of Oregon at this point. <laughs> like I like it's not mine to say at some level because I'm not her and I haven't been traveling in Eastern Oregon with my family with brown skin, but really? So this like deep-seated fear struck me as exactly the si- same style of deep-seated fear that actual white nationalists have about people who look different from them. Um, or is it intentionally selective storytelling and spinning of what is true? I think it's some of both. I think I think she's got some of both there. And just before you respond, let me just um, reread in episode 48. So four episodes ago, I read from the beginning of my then brand new essay in the glossy Swiss magazine, Schweitzer Monat. Um, I want to share just the first paragraph again here. Um, because um, lest you wonder what I think, and I think you think also is going on in the streets of Portland, it looks like this. George Floyd died, and you don't have to show it, Zach. George Floyd died under the knee of a police officer in Minneapolis in the end of May, and people spilled onto the streets of American cities, outraged at police brutality and racial bias and exhausted by COVID-19 lockdowns. In Portland, Oregon, where I live, those protests turned into riots nearly every single night last summer. The homicide rate climbed to the highest it's been in 30 years. One late night in mid-August, a man was dragged from his car and beaten by a small band of thugs. The next day, on a bluebird sky morning, some of the few stores nearby that were not boarded up had shop owners out on the sidewalks, cleaning up from the mayhem of the previous night. In this once bustling downtown, normal human activity is almost entirely absent while the sun shines, and at night, the chaos resumes. Fires are started, people are assaulted, human feces is literally thrown around. Some would tell you that my mentioning these facts is evidence that I'm on the political right. In fact, I am and always have been on the left. So that's my version. Her version looks almost nothing like that. And yet here we are living in the same city. And it's the negative. It's the negative. It's the negative. Like the photographic negative. Yeah, like the photographic negative. So I want to point out two things. Yeah. One, I think I know what she's doing. Mm-hmm. And I think it works like this. Okay. There is a template. There is a narrative template of what those who are pushing in this direction, let's take them uh, as honest and wanting a revolution that they believe will think make things better. I believe they are crazy in this assessment, but let us imagine that privately, this is what they think. And so Mm -hmm. they are sparing nothing in the attempt to uh, advance this narrative. So the point is, one way to score a point in their universe Mm -hmm. is to put something into the world that advances this narrative. And part of this narrative is that the counter narrative is itself counterfeit, right? Mm -hmm. So if you pay attention to the Portland subreddit, for example, this is constant, right? It is a constant stream of things designed to suggest Portland is fine. It is being portrayed as not fine by right-wing zealots and fascists. The cause is Trump. The response is peaceful. It's constant, right? So here you have a so high- So I thought you said it was the counter-narrative that was, that was counterfeit. I, th- I think I missed Her a sign there. Her narrative is counterfeit. But yeah. inside of that narrative, why is it? 
that you are seeing all this stuff about something being wrong in Portland if, in fact, Portland is fine and it's a bunch of peaceful liberals protesting against federal fascism. Mm -hmm. Oh, the answer is that's a right-wing talking point that's being advanced into the world. It's nonsense. You can go hey, walk out into Portland. You see any fires? You know, this kind right. of thing. So I believe what she is doing is taking the template, and it's a little bit like being jumped into a gang, right? Mm -hmm. You're being jumped into a gang. The answer is, well... If you're going to be jumped into the gang, you have to. I don't know these, this phrase. You have to commit these crimes, or you mm -hmm. have to endure this beating, or you have to advance this cause, or you have to bring back this thing, whatever it is. And so, in effect, there is a set of things that you can do that make you one of the mob. And one of them is advancing this with whatever tools you have to bring to bear. Mm -hmm. And I would point out you've got your corrective. Mm -hmm. Right? You've described what you see. You can compare it to what she sees. And we also have, in this case, the marvelous comparison of what Douglas Murray saw. Right? Yeah. Because, of course, he's coming from London. And right. Douglas Murray sat in that very chair and said, this is not normal. Yeah. I have seen <clears throat> these things, but I have never seen them in a first world city. Mm -hmm. Right? This is not normal. And, and you know what? He didn't. Well, I have not finished listening to your conversation with Douglas Murray yet, but when we had dinner with him and what I have listened to, I don't think he said he's seen even these things. He said he's seen um, journalists worried, you know, f fearful for their lives. And obviously, he, we, we all know that journalists have been killed. Um, but he, I think he said that he hasn't even seen, and he's been a lot of places with civil unrest, um, graffiti advocating for the killing of a journalist, he's talking about Andy No, and the authorities doing nothing about it, it just being allowed to stand. So that actually was, I, I think he said, novel in his experience. Yeah, I believe he did say that that was novel in his experience. And obviously, it's a tacit sanction. Yes. Um, which is frightening, right? Mm -hmm. Andy is among the only people giving a sense for what's actually going on in Portland on a daily basis. And of course, they want to do away with him because their whole phony narrative depends on you not being able to check for yourself. And frankly, you want to know what's going on in Portland? Look at what's on Andy Noe's feed. It's documented. It's video, right? Yeah. It's not to say that that's the full picture, exactly. but it's what not is everything. on the feed is certainly happening. It's not everything that's going on in Portland. Certainly it's been curated, um, but it's not fabricated. Yeah. Curated, but not fabricated. Curated, but not fabricated. And because it is alone in telling the true story of what's going on in Portland, you know, the fact that it's curated, it doesn't even begin to get at what it's up against with respect to, to phony narrative. Yeah. So if I can take one little detour here. Yeah. There's something I wanted to introduce, which um, a friend um, pointed this out uh, in a conversation some weeks ago, and it has stuck with me. There is a scientific result that increasingly, I think, explains one of the weirdest features of this modern chaos, which is the tendency of the claims to be most overblown in places where they are least likely to be true, mm -hmm. right? So Portland is the site of these riots over anti-black racism. Portland is as liberal a city as exists in the country. Mm -hmm. Presumably anti-black racism is less prevalent here than it is almost anywhere else. Why is it happening? Yeah. Same thing with Evergreen. Mm -hmm. Why was Evergreen the site of this most incredible set of protests about uh, white supremacy? Of all places for white supremacy 
to be difficult to find. You would imagine Evergreen would be top of the list. Mm -hmm. And, you know, for me to be their first target... Demonstrates equally, just how difficult it was just, to find. <laughs> yeah, just how difficult it was to find. Yeah. So anyway, here's the question. Uh, Zach, could you put up the paper that I sent you? So what this paper describes is an experiment. Oh, geez, I'm not going to be able to read it. Okay. Any chance you can make it a little bigger? And scroll up to the abstract. Um, the There it goes. Yep, no. And scroll up so we can see the abstract. There we go. So what this paper describes is an experiment that tested what people's perception initially about color, having no connotation whatsoever, blue versus purple. Um, people's perception of color as one color in the experiment became increasingly rare. So let me read the abstract to the extent I can do that from here. Do you want me? Do you want me? Yeah, to, you want to do it? I can see it. Yeah. Why do some social problems seem so intractable? In a series of experiments, we show that people often respond to decreases in the prevalence of a stimulus by expanding their concept of it. When blue dots became rare, participants began to see purple dots as blue. When threatening faces became rare, participants began to see neutral faces as threatening. And when unethical requests became rare, participants began to see innocuous requests as unethical. This prevalence-induced concept change occurred even when participants were forewarned about it, and even when they were instructed and paid to resist it. Social problems may seem intractable in part because reductions in their prevalence lead people to see more of them. Wow. So this is a, like like with the Noam Chomsky interview in the New Yorker. I've not seen this before, so I I've not read the paper. I can't say what's in it. Or this was published. You said twenty eighteen. Yeah. Um. Or maybe you said that to me off air. Um. So there's probably been time for rebuttal if there has been time for rebuttal, and I don't know if there has been. I looked. I did not. I do not you don't, find you don't see it? a rebuttal. Um, amazing. It, it's amazing. amazing. So if we can just put this in context, you and I immediately spot in that abstract um, a claim that, if true, has tremendous implications for things like claims of injustice. In effect, what we've got is a kind of built-in, apparently neurological relativism, that as something becomes rare, finds it where it isn't. Now, you can imagine that there are all kinds of reasons that your neurobiology would have such a feature, right? Imagine... Neurological you're, relativism. You're searching for berries, right? The berries you will find first are going to be the ones that are obvious and right in front of your face. As those get depleted because you've picked all the good ones, you have to become increasingly sensitive. So diminishing returns causes your perception to need to get more sensitive. You need to effectively become visually berry paranoid in order to spot the one that's halfway hidden by the leaf. I know. Yeah, that's an incredible phrase, isn't it? But Visually berry paranoid. Visually berry paranoid. Yes. But I Okay. So you can imagine that this could result in you collecting more berries per hour, a kind of increase in your sensitivity the problem well, is, you know, or it's you know you've hit that point in the diminishing returns curve where you should go fish instead or go well, to a totally different part of the right or part but, of your locale right, to but find imagine berries. how that would play out if you were looking for berries right, right? your sensitivity goes up mm -hmm. which means you keep finding the ones that are harder and harder to find and then eventually you're seeing phantom berries where they aren't you're just seeing a shadow or a dark space in the thing and you're reaching in and you're getting nailed by a thorn right mm -hmm. the point is that will that calculation will hit you too. And it'll yep. be like, 
I keep thinking I'm going to get something and there's no reward. I keep thinking I'm going to get it, no reward, no reward, right? But there's physical feedback with regard to visually bury paranoia. Right. And not, there's no, there's not inherently any actual physical feedback when it's claims that are entirely socially constructed around, I am sure that he said that to me because he's racist. Right. So right. what you've got is a system that has... I think an objective analysis would tell you that there was a great deal of racism at the founding of the country. Even people who wanted to know better still didn't, right? right? Mm -hmm. And that the degree to which racism is a commonly encountered phenomenon has dropped dramatically. Mm -hmm. And that at this point in history, we are, in objective terms, far better off than we were with respect to this thing that we all agree is bad. However, and not only that, but better than most of the world, better than most of the world. And we all know what the goal or is, we which is zero racism, right. right? So that's an amazing degree of progress. But the point is what it accompanies is a decrease in actual examples of racism that you encounter, which if this mm -hmm. paper is right and general, which it suggests it seems to be by virtue of the fact that they weren't just looking at colors, they were looking at things like perceptions of threat and uh, perceptions of injustice, yeah. that what this suggests is that as the phenomenon in question becomes increasingly rare, people will find it where it isn't, yeah. which raises rather directly the specter that microaggressions and every analog of them is going to be formulated as you approach zero with respect to this being a common phenomenon, right? And so what will that look like? Well, it will certainly, in a, in a case where let's say there was zero racism in policing, and I'm not saying that there is, but let's say that we reached zero, right? There would still be bad shootings and things because to have people enforcing the law with mm -hmm. guns guarantees there will be a certain number of bad shootings. We'll hit something close to zero racism in policing before we will hit zero errors in violence in policing. Right. And then what you would predict is that people will read into events that actually weren't bad shootings yeah. or events that were bad shootings but were not racially biased. Exactly. They will read into it exactly this thing. Yeah. And that, of course, could derange civilization, especially if you had an online amplification mechanism for these things. So, um, you know, think about the term white supremacy, right? White supremacy was a thing that everybody would have agreed was vanishingly rare 15 years ago mm -hmm. because we all understood it to be something pretty dramatic, right? It wasn't just garden variety racism. It was an aggressive um, belief structure that, you know, crosses burning on lawns and this kind of thing. And Gosh, I want to say every, but let's just say nearly every elected official in the United States would have been proud to get up and say, obviously, I oppose white supremacism. Obviously. Obviously. Right. It's the most obvious thing in the world. And now we're getting to the point where the absence of overt white supremacy, right, the relegating of that ugly, terrible phenomenon to a tiny number of people on the fringe that doesn't matter, right? That thing is now being read into all kinds of stuff, right? Structural yeah, racism sure. and your failure to say anything about it is the equivalent of white supremacy, yep. which is insane, mm -hmm. right? So I would argue, um, first of all, we need to take the terms back. White supremacy, I would argue that there is a floor, a natural floor based on the common parlance interpretation of the words. Mm -hmm. That a white supremacist should, by definition, at the very least, have to be rooting for white people 
to rule over others. They would have to be rooting for white people to win, right? And that means that it can't be a feature of a structure, right? It can't be a feature if you are somebody who doesn't want to see uh, one race win over other races, then that to me suggests you can't be a white supremacist. It doesn't mean you can't be uh, ignorant. It doesn't mean that you can't be part of the problem, right? You could be you could be ignoring important patterns, but that term would seem to suggest an a desire to see something rather than just a, an indifference to it. Yeah, uh, I mean, there's there's a lot more to be explored here. One of my concerns with what you just said, though, is that there is widespread conflation between individuals and populations, right? That that most people actually don't understand when they have jumped the, that, that giant gap between talking about an individual versus talking about a population. And um, while that I find egregious and really we should be educating people much, much better such that people understand the distinction between an individual and a population level analysis and level of responsibility, uh, what is less surprising to me is that... Um, well, maybe actually more more surprising in some ways is uh, that scientists themselves contribute to this to this confusion. And oh, I, I I actually don't think I'm going to go here now. I think I, I don't I don't quite agree with you saying we need the terms back because I think. I have been interested in getting, for instance, the term feminism back for a long time, and I sort of, I sort of gave up. Mm-hmm. You know, I've been calling I, long before we were ever on any sort of national stage. I was calling what has been passing for feminism since the mid '90s faux feminism, F A U X feminism, and you know, with Kendi on the stage, taking so much, you know, collecting so many resources and having so much power. I just, I just don't know if it's possible to take these terms back and the and the distinction. I guess, and this is what I was going to say, that um, you know, can if an individual can be a white supremacist, does it necessarily follow that an organization cannot be? I don't think it necessarily follows, but I do think that it is absolutely necessary to whenever you're making that leap from a category that applies to individuals and you are now applying it to, to, to structures, to systems, to populations, to organizations, to be clear that that is what you are doing and that it therefore may not hold, that this therefore may be an illegitimate move because evolutionary processes don't work on the same, in the same way between individuals and populations. Well, okay, a couple things. One, uh, let me clarify. It's not, uh, obviously I don't want to take the term white supremacy back. I don't want it Right. What uh, I want that's not is what to, you're saying. Right. I, I want to corral the term uh, to a reasonable standard. And the important thing that we are seeing, I think, we are seeing it overtake quality thought across the board is a demotion of intent as relevant to the assessment of uh, a uh, the presence of a thought pattern. And so, you know, mm-hmm. for for Chomsky to say that Trump is the greatest criminal in human history and for his explanation to be that he doesn't care about intent, the point is the hazard, right? This is garbage thinking. Yeah, but I actually think the opposite is also happening. And it's it's causing maybe more harm even. That, you know, Chomsky can say intent doesn't matter, but like, well, for God's sake, that's just so obviously wrong. And now obviously things that have been obviously wrong are now accepted. So we should still be paying attention. But uh, I think this is a good segue to talking about the so-called Karen Act in San Francisco. 
Uh, the acronym stands for Caution Against Racially and Exploitative Non-Emergencies, and it's obviously named for this epithet against white women uh, who are you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class white women who are understood to be racially biased and calling the police on black men mostly when they shouldn't be. Um, so, oh boy, this, so this, this was just voted on. The San Francisco Board of Supervisors unanimously passed this on October 27th. And let's see, here we have, this is just the ABC reporting on it, Zach. Um, San Francisco leaders voted to crack down on so-called Karens who use 9-11 calls to discriminate against minorities. So even the ABC reporting of it acknowledges the use of this really gross epithet. We aren't allowed to use other epithets for good reason, but newly created ones against um groups who have been historically understood to be in power, even when they actually, um, okay, so take this off. This is too distracting. Thank you. Um, oh boy. Um, it is now somehow okay. The actual ordinance amends the city's police code and allows anyone harmed by calls that are racially motivated to sue. So who's to decide whether or not a call was racially motivated? Now we are mind reading intent into 911 calls and anyone is going to think twice about making a 911 call if they have an ability to see that they're that the person who they would be calling against is a different race from them this is this is going to have an effect that is actually um dangerous oh right? yeah and so this this is mind reading intent this is this is prioritizing intent as opposed to pretending that intent doesn't matter at all so it's it's all very slapdash and whatever serves our particular goals at the moment um so uh, let me say that in the three months between when this ordinance was first proposed and when it was accepted uh they solicited feedback from the community and there were two emails that I found and going through this that I found that I thought were just pointed that, that exactly described what the problem with this is. And I will say that most of the feedback, most of it was negative, um, but the vast majority of it objected only to the name, only to the epithet and not to the actual ordinance. And the epithet is nasty and gross and what the hell were they thinking, but it's hardly the biggest problem here. And indeed, Virginia just passed a very similar bill um, that they didn't give a crazy name. It's called HB 5098 on hate crimes, um, in which it's a misdemeanor to knowingly give a false report to a law officer, but that becomes a felony if that knowing false report is because of the, the person that you think was perpetrating it is in any of these protected classes. So that's super dangerous and Virginia just did the same thing. That's what the San Francisco bill um, has has done and uh, or ordinance, not bill. Um, wrote one person into the San Francisco Board of Supervisors during the open discussion period. This is one liberal Democrat saddened that fellow Democrats are so blunted and blinded in their grievance that they wish to simply rearrange the parameters of institutional racism rather than work to eliminate it. Sounds familiar, does it not? Yes, the turning the tables of oppression rather than ending oppression. Exactly. And this one just a bit longer, but even more on point, I think. 
The proposed Karen Act is a bad idea. In most cases, it is nearly impossible to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that a call is racially motivated. This creates incredibly dangerous gray area in our legal system that can easily be abused. It will also cause more division in our communities as people will undoubtedly read bias into the rulings. This will drive a wedge between the racial groups of our city and create prejudice where none existed previously as groups start to blame each other for erroneous convictions. We are already dealing with this issue when it comes to police brutality. We don't need to add more fire to that pot. It will also promote segregation between racial groups, as the potential for negative interactions start to carry more dramatic consequences. It will become safer to just avoid other racial groups that will be worth it to work together. It will also create an incentive for criminals to target other races, because they will be able to claim racial discrimination if a person calls the cops on them and the cops arrive before a crime is committed. The criminal can easily say, I wasn't trying to do XYZ, the caller is obviously racist. This reminded me so much of the emails that you were sending in the 2016-2017 school year at Evergreen. Just each of these points are ones that you were making with regard to the changes that were being proposed and, and passed at Evergreen. It's the same garbage. It's the same it's the garbage. Same, it's the same playbook. And the worst part, which was mentioned in here, is that this effectively uh, creates a multi-tiered, and now you can argue that there's always been a multi-tiered uh, set of penalties and permissions inside the law, but mm -hmm. we all understood it was a bad thing, yeah. right? This builds it in mm -hmm. so that the fact is you know, A, it's basically painting a target on white women, right? Because mm -hmm. the point is uh, the chances that you have, you have an extra set of defenses that you can use in this case. If you're black and you want to attack a white woman, then you have an extra set of legal questions that can be used to, mm -hmm. um, to muddy waters. And so... So let me just like, I don't know how to do it for the people who are just listening, but um, but for people watching, if we had this sort of ranked list of, you know, demographic characters that you that you have had that gave you full protection from the law and historically like white men were at the top and white women were were second and you know black men were were at the bottom and it was kind of like this and it's been moving right and us liberals want this to go flat and it's been moving and it looks like they want it to do this absolutely so it's not let's just let's just overcorrect a little bit no they're trying to flip it they're trying to put the previous, the previous demographic indicators that caused people so much harm, deaths, all of this, into the position of power and privilege. And that's not what democracy should, should be searching for. Yes, and they are using the informal and discretionary aspects built into everything to do it, right? Yeah. So... Obviously, the law here reads, uh, oh, yes, racially motivated uh, 911 calls sure. are, you know, now going to be uh, penalized. Well, that was already there, except that what you've done is you've added a particular slant, right? Yeah. Um, you know, you, calling 911 falsely is already a crime. So yep. um, anyway, they're, they're using this discretion. And the thing is, you know, as I've said before, it's effectively... Uh, reparations built into every interaction at every scale every day of the year and you know this is not a viable solution to the problem even if you are strongly in favor of reparations you can't do it this way yep um and yet here we are and yet here we are we are um we are past our hour mark and um unless you have something more i thought i would 
before before I read from a tiny bit of this book, just a page of this book, do you have anything more that you want to talk about today besides you know everything? Uh, nope, uh, I think we have we have done a decent first pass on everything. <laughs> on everything, on everything we chose to talk about. So, um, this is Cynical Theories uh, by. Uh, so I'm just going to look up the subtitle here. Cynical Theories, How Activist Scholarship Made Everything About Race, Gender, and Identity, and Why This Harms Everybody. Written, published this year by our friends Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. Uh, it is uh, it has experienced some um, some weird machinations on Amazon. You know they don't seem to really like it that much. Um, so you know it you know less so than Abigail Schreier's book, Irreconcilable Differences, but um, still a, you know a bit. A, a bit down downplayed and downgraded in um, in the public eye. I highly recommend it. I admit that I have not read all of it, but I've dipped into it, and it is exactly the um, remarkable resource that I expected it would be at the point that they were telling us they were writing this. So at the very end, they have um, just a few, what they say as a few examples of how you can recognize social injustice while rejecting the solutions the ideology of social justice proposes. So they've got a number of principled opposition examples. Example one being, we affirm that racism remains a problem in society and needs to be addressed. We deny that critical race theory and intersectionality provide the most useful tools to do so, since we believe that racial issues are best solved through the most rigorous analyses possible. We contend that racism is defined as prejudiced attitudes and discriminatory behavior against individuals or groups on the grounds of race and can be successfully addressed as such. We deny that racism is hard-baked into society via discourses, that it is unavoidable and present in every interaction to be discovered and called out, and that this is part of a ubiquitous systemic problem that is everywhere, always, and all-pervasive. We deny that the best way to deal with racism is by restoring social significance to racial categories and radically heightening their salience. And finally, we contend that each individual can choose not to hold racist views and should be expected to do so, that racism is declining over time and becoming rarer, that we can and should see one another as humans first and members of certain races second, that issues of race are best dealt with by being honest about racialized experiences while still working towards shared goals and a common vision, and that the principle of not discriminating by race should be universally upheld. Excellent, as you would expect from those two. As you'd expect from those two. Yeah. Um, oh, and I guess actually one, one more thing we wanted to do today, um, if I can turn this into a link and then have you show my screen, Zachary, um, is you know, a totally different topic. Um, we are here in Portland, as we have mentioned many times, and uh, in response to the virtual schooling that looks like it may go on endlessly, and the fact that some of the public schooling options are not um, doing a very good job of educating, a couple of friends of ours are starting a, an, an alternative school, um, but they're calling a pod, but um, it's Wilding Academy. It's here on the screen, and we'll put a link in the description as well. And um, it's for uh, basically 12 to 15-year-olds. Uh, let's see. Yeah. Um, 12 to 15-year-olds, sort of late middle school, early high school. Uh, it's going to be based out in Gresham, but with a lot of outdoor time. We are considering whether or not to have our younger son um, move out of his public school situation and into this. Um, but regardless of whether or not we do that, our friends Sam and Robin, who are starting this up, um, are 
I think are going to do an excellent job. And we encourage anyone with kids of that age in the Portland area who are thinking um, that they might want something different for their kids educationally to look into it. Yep. Golden opportunity. Yeah. Yeah. All right. We have reached the uh, the end of the first portion of Dark Horse Podcast Live number 52. Yes, we have. So we will be coming back in 15 minutes to answer your Super Chat questions that you asked this hour and next. You, uh, as always, can join us on our Patreons on mine to get access to a private Q&A every month, the last Sunday of the month, on Brett's uh in one of a couple of the things are to join him for uh, small conversations. Uh, the first of this month is tomorrow is morning. Is tomorrow at 10 a.m. If you are an attendee of that conversation, Zoom did something funny when I created the uh, the schedule, which is it corrected in advance for daylight savings time, so the time reads incorrectly in the invite. But it's 10 o'clock a.m. tomorrow. Uh, as if it time. imagines you're counting up hours as opposed to you know when it is in the schedule anyway. I created matter. it five times to make sure I wasn't making an error and it did it every time. So Okay, so but it's going it. to be 10 a.m. as usual for two hours. Um, there's a Discord server that you get access to at either of our Patreons. Uh, the Dark Horse Podcast Clips channel is producing clips uh, almost daily at this point. Uh, so subscribe to that too. If uh, And if, there's, if there are clips that you particularly like to see from any of these... Uh, episodes you can contact the moderator at dark horse moderator is that the web is that the email address i think i don't remember i'm sorry um and we will see you in 15 minutes all right be well everyone